Hi and welcome to the Sacred You podcast, where we create sacred community together. I'm Rachel Goodwin, channel healer and author who loves to empower you on your spiritual path. I offer original and new ways and my work with Sarah, daughter of the Magdalene and with the new earth is pioneering and leading edge. If you're ready to burst through to the next level, come over to my website, rachelgoodwin.dk and see all the amazing things that I have to offer you. Today we have an episode that was recorded just before the winter solstice and it's a really fantastic interview to end the year with because I just loved talking to this guy so much. His name is Oliver Huntley. He's a wisdom keeper, author, storyteller. He currently lives in the Holy Mountains of the Brecon Beacon in Wales in the UK. And he's on a soul mission to bring back lost mystery school wisdom and initiations from the Druids, the Essenes and Celtic Christianity. There's so much good stuff in this conversation. It's really just so interesting and I can't wait to share it. And I really hope that you'll come over to our Sacred You Facebook page on Facebook or onto my Instagram page, rachelgoodwin.dk and drop us a comment. Tell us what you thought. Here it is. Hello, everyone. We have another episode of Sacred You. It'll be the last one for 2022. And we are talking to the lovely Oliver Huntley today. Welcome, Oliver. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And I'm really excited yeah, to, to share some time, some space and some short, deep wisdom with you. Well, we'll see. <laughs> you never know. You never know what's going to come up. I can be quite um, well. I do like to make some jokes as well. OK, well, we'll keep it light. We'll keep it funny, too. <laughs> so I've been seeing your feed on Instagram for a while and, you know, particularly notice it because there's not that many men that are working in this area and as we were just saying before we came on you know I work with Sarah who's the daughter of Mary Magdalene and Yeshua and Master Jesus and that masculine element is so often missing I find so you know I really appreciate you 
for doing the work that you're doing and, and bringing that masculine energy in. And, and I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thank you for, for seeing that and for reflecting that back to me. And it's really interesting now. I always find, you know, being a man, being the masculine form, going into a lot of type of Mary Magdalene transmissions and Rose transmissions and even womb transmissions. It can seem yeah, a little lonely sometimes being, you know, a man doing this work. And in some ways, I always have to laugh at that because we all see like the lack of the Sophian wisdom right now coming through. We're like, well, where is the feminine essence? But just as you were saying before, there's also a lack of masculine presence working within the Christed and, and the Mary Magdalene line. So it feels in total like all of us are, are kind of coming back, both the Sophian feminine traditions, but also the men who are working within this field. And it only feels like the light can be truly whole when both the men and the women come back into themselves, into these realms, into these frequencies and codes. So it's really exciting. And I also noticed that more men stepping into these fields bringing back this type of a seed gnostic type wisdom so it's really encouraging and really exciting to see you know especially after it's been so damaged and then corrupted in many ways over the past few thousand years yeah yeah it, and, and it is it i can see that it's starting to shift and change now and I'd, I'd really love to hear a little bit about like your background and where you've come from and because i have to say i have to say i assumed you were british I don't know if you. I don't know if you are, but you know, I just looking at your pictures. I just thought you look so British. And then I listened to you talking on something yesterday, and I was like, "Ah, oh, he's American." And then mm. I, you know, because it's amazing, isn't it, though, how we look at people and we just make all these assumptions that are generally like you know eighty five percent wrong a lot of the time. But I'd, I'd love to hear. Tell me a bit about like where you've come from, like where you grew up. Thank you for that. Well, you're right. I am British or, or I was born in London. Uh, I just grew up in the States. So that's why I have an American accent now. So kind of a little bit of both worlds, you know, weaving the old world and the new world together. Um, but all my ancestry and, and my roots are really uh, anchored here in the UK, which is where I am now. Specifically, I'm in Wales. And it's been a really fun path for me to, I guess, when we look at it from a soul perspective, right, to choose our incarnations and choose, you know, the experiences that we have during life that that really sets us up for, you know, what is to become of us, you know, where, where our path is ultimately going. And what I love most about, you know, working within these type of conscious light fields is it's not that my life has always been light, right? It's not that it's always been conscious. If anything, most of my life has been the exact opposite. And because of, you know, the polarity, the differences, I actually feel it's really set me up for a lot of the, the type of work I'm doing now. And so growing up, you know, looking back at my childhood, there was just a lot of trauma there. I experienced a lot of what I would consider some of the most deepest and darkest traumas that children can really experience. And some of the work that I do now with men really addresses one of those type of childhood wounds that a lot of us experience, especially men, which is something called the mother wound. And so I experienced a lot of wounding around, you know, my connection to my mother. And, and in essence, when we experience a mother wound, that mother wound then gets expressed in almost every aspect of our lives and especially in relationships. And so it's, I have to laugh, you know, because so much of the work I do now is with the kind of feminine Sophie and Ray codes within the divine feminine. And 
it's almost like I had to go through certain wounding, certain challenges, certain darknesses, and really, you know, start to own my own anger, resentment, hatred of the feminine that came from my mother wound. That's allowed me as a man to step into these fields in maybe more of an authentic way, especially because I'm still healing and I'm still going through, you know, the healing of my own relationship to the feminine, to my own feminine, to the mother, to the mother wounds. And by going through this process, it, it brings me into a, a state of whole in a, in a state where I can authentically really feel the type of energies that are coming into the planet now and that are working through the, the collective, through humanity, healing this aspect. And especially as a man in you know, what we would call the patriarchy and the ways in which the patriarchy has been at war, quote unquote, war with the feminine, it's really helped give me some really clear insights by just reflecting on my own path. And so my childhood, you know, that was a kind of a tangent, but my childhood really was filled with a lot of darkness, a lot of trauma, a lot of forgetfulness of, of spirit and soul. And then, you know, going through this process of healing and coming back into myself, I felt there was just such an internal reclamation of light and healing that just catapulted me right back to, to really where I find myself now. And that was largely aided not only by different communities that I've lived in throughout my life, but also going to uh, live in very sacred sites around the world, what we would consider portals or vortexes or chakra or node points around the world. I often find that a lot of us who are on this conscious path, we get magnetically drawn to the places that we need to go because in those places, we find the codes and the frequencies that we need that will really aid or, or awaken or reveal the things, especially internal processes that we need to go through. And so I found in my later years, um, when I really started to re-anchor a, a conscious path, I was just being yeah, drawn around the planet to these very specific places that really yeah, facilitated and helped me heal and also helped me align to, to my soul mission, which is you know very much anchored where I am now in the UK and Wales. So I always love looking back, you know, as painful and traumatic and as angry and as hurt as I was in life. I'm so grateful that my soul chose these things to go through these experiences because I have such a toolkit now that allows me to step into this field to help others to work with the land and to work with you know collective energies in a way that if I didn't go through these things, I would have never had those. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, from working with Sarah, because she's that she's that balance of the divine masculine and the divine feminine the light and the dark it's all about that constant balancing between the two and we live in a world of polarity so however much darkness there is in one's life that means one has the capacity to bring equal amounts of light and it's not about one lording it over the other it's 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 the two of them coming together so you know, when I when I hear someone talking about their life and the the trauma, and I equally feeling the capacity for for healing, and you know that I I really have experienced that um, really since I I worked with Sarah. To the soul has whatever wounding there is, the soul has the cure in there in the in there for it which is it's so uplifting and, it, and it's so hopeful and you know and I can feel that like when you're talking I can feel like that heart 
opening that you've been able to open your heart in in response to that difficulty and and pain and and trauma yeah yeah i mean whether you believe there is a soul and we have destiny and you know soul choice or simply it's you know just it happens you know by circumstances of life for me it ends up being the same because it's all about our response to it. So whether we feel our soul chose it or we simply just feel, hey, that's that's the the hand we were dealt in life. It's beautiful because regardless of how we want to view the, the context of life, it all comes down to, okay, well, this is what I've experienced and this is what I'm going to respond or how I'm going to respond or what I'm going to do to it. And so both ways lead to a, a deep sense of empowerment and, and responsibility that we have to, no matter what we have, no matter what we're experiencing, we have the choice to respond in the way that we want to and to become the person we want to by not being bound by yeah, the experiences that that we grew up through or, or that we came into this life with. Yeah. And, and, and I've mentioned this on like previous podcasts before, but the stories that really move me are the ones of like, there was, there was a Buddha who he was an actual murderer and was just, just such a terrible person. And then he managed to, through his own connection to his own inner Buddha, become a Buddha in that lifetime. And whenever I read that story, I cry. I just cry. And it's the same with Mary Magdalene. And I do understand why some people say, you know, it's terrible to say that she was a whore and all the rest of it. But I also feel like, well, so what if she was? You know, we all have that capacity within us for whoredom, you know, given the right circumstances and the right life, what if she what if she was a whore and then was able to like become what she then became all the more fantastic to her that 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 she had that capacity to heal within her? I mean, that's just as beautiful to me than you know, if she was completely just the worst person than if she was some beautiful priestess of Isis and 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 all the rest of it because I, I again I think it's because it brings hope to me to think that that it doesn't matter and and that is actually that came into my head years ago I used to be a psychiatric nurse and you know I saw a lot of pain and trauma and, and darkness during that time and yeah I also recognized a lot of my own family around me being mirrored back to me in, in the patients that I was seeing and realised, like, just the depth of the trauma in my own um, family. And um, oh. I've forgotten what I was saying now. What was I saying, Oliver? Gone off. I do that. Sorry. So where you can be in the darkness and come back. So even if Mary Magdalene was a broken woman, whether she was a harlot, whether however you want to say it, there's something beautiful about you can always find your pathway back, just like the Buddha who was a murderer. Yeah. I can't remember where I was going with that. It might come back to me. It might come back to me. We'll see. I do this from time to time. People get used to me. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, I always like thinking, I mean, so much of our kind of spiritual community, a lot of them like to demonize people that they judge yeah. as bad, as evil, right? It's like, oh, that person's bad. That person's evil. Well, these are the same people that believe that we have souls and the souls choose a path, right? So obviously these people's souls chosen incarnation to experience darkness or negativity or forgetfulness. Does that make them any less than we are now? And if anything, yeah. 
in some ways, if they were to find their way back to the light, whether we see them as corrupt politicians, you know, executives of bad companies, whatever, if these people were to find their way back to to the light, so to speak, their reclamation of light will be so much greater than anyone who's just been on, you know, a light conscious, you know, good path. And these people should never have hope taken away from them or we should never stop offering hope and and love to them because sometimes that is what we need to do we need to love the darkness back into the light that just hiding in the light and saying that that's that's the only thing that matters yeah 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 and that's it and i remember now what i was saying so so i but i burnt out psychiatric nursing in the end you know i loved my job i completely burnt out and then i went and worked in a gift shop for a year where i just wrapped candles and things like mm-hmm. that and i was looking out of the window one day and yeshua turned up <laughs> and he was by my shoulder and he said there's no wound so great it cannot be healed by the love of the divine mother mm-hmm. that's beautiful and i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it wasn't expecting him to turn up and say that but but I've never I've never forgotten that and if like people are listening and they're in a dark place because you know I, I know what it feels like to be in a dark place you know what it feels like to be in a dark place often when you're in that dark place it feels like you're never gonna get out that nothing can help you that you're just stuck stuck there and it it really helps to hear that message of however dark it is, it it can be as light as that. But actually the best thing is to bring them both together and like weave them in this magical, magical alchemy. So you're living in Wales. Are you near the Brecon Beacons by any chance? Yes, I'm in I'm in the Brecon Beacons. Fantastic. I saw, I think I saw that on one of your posts. My brother, my brother, I have a brother and sister and they're half Welsh. And my brother mm-hmm. loves going out climbing. He's 60 something now and he still goes and climbs up all over the place in the Brecon Beacons. I've never actually made it, but I've seen your pictures and it looks so mm-hmm. beautiful. It's, it's incredible up here. I mean, they, they call them the holy mountains in many ways for, for a very specific reason. And for those of us that are really, you know, opening our hearts to, let's say, Christianity, the original Christianity, or what I would consider more more authentic to the, the true Christianity. This is what's known as the Silurian Empire at the time of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And, and so the foundations or the earliest roots of Christianity anywhere in the world were here on this land in the Silurian Empire. The first church in the entire world was, was here in Wales. And so there's such a forgotten past in history with the Celtic Church that not only am I devoted to, my partner is devoted to, but really helping to bring these stories about a truly pure form, perhaps the purest form of Christianity anywhere in the world, certainly the oldest, bringing these stories back. And so these lands hold those roots and and those keys to understanding that. And so that's a lot of what my work is now, is uncovering the the forgotten story of the Celtic church and really the story of Joseph of Arimathea, who is very near and dear to my own heart, but it's almost through Joseph that we can truly put together the entire biblical story. And without him, it's really lost or not fully understood. That is so interesting. So you're writing a book about that at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I am. And do you, do you have any sort of end date at all? Vaguely? Yeah. So it will be, 
well, it's going to be a whole anthology of books, essentially a whole universe that birthing. But the the first three books will be called the Life and Teachings of Joseph Arimathea, and so these three books will tell the story of what happened before Jesus was born, why Joseph became essentially a second father to Jesus after Jesus's father passed away, and then the third book will tell the story of what happened to the quote unquote Grail. After the crucifixion, and so Joseph was front and center to these three important periods in the Christed legacy of before Jesus, during Jesus, and what happened after Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea's story has never been fully told, and the vast majority of what's out there now is unfortunately just either misrepresented or misunderstood. Most of it is actually about an entirely different Joseph. And so his story truly needs to be told. And by telling his story, you know, at least in my perspective, what I've researched and what it felt so far, it weaves everything together and really completes the history of what, you know, the, the dove, Christianity, the grail, the Magdalene, right? The Christ delight, all these things really can be understood by understanding him and, and what he did. And I'm just so grateful for his presence and also the ways in which he's speaking through me right now to bring out this light and, and to help people fill in such an important gap that has truly been lost for a long time. Yeah, and I think a lot of us feel that. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea has really got a presence in Glastonbury. And, you know, so many of us who go there and, and visit Glastonbury, it's like we can feel it and we know it, but we're not quite sure why. And it's like that, it's that, it's that missing, it's that missing story. There's a it's a that sounds so interesting. I can't wait to read. When's the first one coming out? So the I'm actually working on the second book first. So it's going to be kind of like a Star Wars situation where it goes book two, book three, then book one. So book one is Joseph's early years, kind of who he was, where he came from, what he went through, who his parents truly were, because who his parents were really has never been been spoken about uh, because what's known about his quote-unquote parents right now again is about a different Joseph so it took me a long time to uncover that fact but the second book that I'm working on right now um, is about his time with Yeshua his time with Jesus because everyone kind of wonders you know why does Joseph of Arimathea get so associated with a very young Jesus and the reason for that is because Jesus's father passed away when Jesus was about 12 give or take some years and when you go into the Hebrew traditions and Hebrew culture, what happens when a father passes away is the guardianship of the children and the wife pass to the uncle. And Joseph Arimathea was Jesus's uncle. So that really helps create the context of why Joseph suddenly becomes so important in a young Jesus's life, but also why he becomes known what's in the Greek term is called perinymphos to Mother Mary, which is essentially guardian of Mother Mary. And Joseph of Arimathea is also a half-brother of Mother Mary. So they're related through um, Anna, St. Anne, Anna, grandmother of Jesus, as most people know about. They're both the children of Anna, even though they have different fathers, they're united through the mother. And so there's all these kind of deeply woven cultural and family traditions that weave Joseph into young Jesus's life. We know this happened. So the fact that Joseph was a guardian or custodian of young Jesus, no one you know, can test that fact. But what I find really fascinating is how come all of these stories seem to center around the UK? 
why does the UK have such a living tradition still to this day of younger Jesus visiting this land with Joseph? And why was Joseph so connected to the UK? Glastonbury, of course, but even more so and lesser known is Joseph is more widely known and more connected to Wales. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea is not a name, just as Mary Magdalene is not a name, it's a title. And so in Wales, Joseph of Arimathea is known as Saint Illid. And so that is an entire history that has never really been plucked out. It's been worked on for the last two or 300 years ago. You know, we have early manuscripts, but in modern days, no one's really picked up that thread and ran with it. And so to me, that was one of the biggest missing links is why was Joseph so connected to the UK and seemingly so primarily connected to Wales, even before Glastonbury? Mm -hmm. And how come Jesus has such an extensive history? Yes, in Glastonbury, but even more so. So in Wales and Cornwall. So this was such a big story that needed to be unpacked. And the way I'm writing it is not so much a history book, even though I'm calling it a, a historical fiction. It's not just about where things happened or when things happened. Where I'm trying to write this is more as a, a, a novel or a fun story is I want to know why. Why did these things happen? Who are these people really? And why did these events take place? And so the second book, again, is Joseph taking Jesus to the UK. And what would Jesus have gone through in his initiations in the UK, which would have been with a group of people called the Druids? And so I get to put kind of all my, my um, last 10 years of research and also my soul expressions into the story of what would it be like to be a young Jesus getting initiated by the Druids? And how did Joseph create that experience for him? And that will move into the third book, which takes place immediately after the crucifixion. What happened after the crucifixion? Where did Mary Magdalene go? Where did Mother Mary go? Who went with Joseph of Arimathea on the boat? Because everything we know that happened after the crucifixion is called non-canical information. Right? It's not history. That's not in the Bible. So what we find is a vast array of contemporary historians at that time telling some very different stories. And it tends to get divided into two camps. The ones that say Mary Magdalene and people went to France and they stayed in France. And there's certainly a lot of information to back up that. But a lot of people also are not talking about there's even more historical, contemporary historical information to say that they either went to France but didn't stay there or they went right away to the UK. And so that's where I pick up the trail is let's tell the UK story because we know the Grail and Joseph went back to the UK. We know that for sure. And there's many ways to interpret the grail, of course. But there's amazing second, third, fourth century documentation of Mother Mary being in the UK, as well as Mary Magdalene. And we don't see any historical France documentation of Mary Magdalene until the eighth century. So these records predate France by almost 400 years. And to me, not see, you know, I we all have our perspectives, but to follow a historical thread, how come these threads seem to point the picture going to the UK? And so that's where I pick up that book telling that story. Because if Joseph was there, the grail was there, and we know Joseph was bound to take care of Mother Mary, as well as many of the other family members of Jesus. And we know Joseph Arimathea became guardian and protector of Mary Magdalene. To me, it feels very interesting. Why would he then leave them somewhere else if it was his destiny to take care, to protect them? Mm -hmm. 
the UK seems to be a very interesting, not well talked about subject. So that's where I kind of weave in the UK history of Joseph through his bloodline, through his time in the UK, and also the fact that so many of these figures seem to be tied into the UK. There's something there. And that's where I really dedicate this book to, to unraveling that story and telling my version of it. Absolutely. And it is, you know, I'll use that word exciting again. It's really exciting to hear you talk about this. For a few years now, I've been banging on about feeling like Sarah has a connection to Wales and I've never Mm -hmm. been able to find anything. You're the first person that I've heard Mm -hmm. saying this and it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. I nearly made it to Wales. I was on a sort of, um, a phase in my life where I had, you know, one phase of my life had ended and I was trying to work out where I was going to go next and I went to Sedona and I went and lived in Glastonbury for a while and I had a whole trip planned around Wales and then I went to Findhorn and stayed there some months and I met the man who I then married and he's Danish (laughs) so I've ended up I didn't go on that trip and I went to Copenhagen in in instead but I was just I was that close to but but actually I was married years before in my early 20s and I was married to a Welshman and oh, yeah look at that. so you're connected in one way or another yeah yeah <laughs> and then, so the other half of my family my siblings they're they're half Welsh I have a lot of Irish um background and also recently I found out I do actually have a bit of Norwegian Swedish Danish and German <laughs> I only found that out recently and it's it's because it has life has just sort of brought me here I didn't plan it I wouldn't have chosen to come to Denmark and you know like a lot of British people we weren't actually that sure where Denmark was I think we've got a bit better now but I mean (laughs) Americans are the same they think Denmark and Holland the Netherlands are actually the same country and you know get it all mixed up because Denmark only has 5.5 million people Mm living in it and you know I've come out here and then really got so fascinated with the you know pre-culture to to Christianity and it's nothing I had any interest in it I mean I'm not a Viking person or or anything like that but like you you know I like working with land energy and I went to um a um burial mound and when I got there there was like a guardian spirit there and he like he was not happy about me being there and I remember standing there and this is about eight years ago now and I felt completely lost because I knew nothing about his culture I thought I can't even go and start to try to like talk to him really because I don't really know where he's coming from and what his cultural background was so I felt like I had to go and like learn more about it and I saw a course in like Nordic shamanism that was based on you know historical knowledge and and so off I went and then and then I never stopped I I just the magical work that's come out of it has just been amazing and it's helped my um earth healing work so much and you know I haven't really got so interested again in like 
the actual history of like Sarah and Mary Magdalene and things like that. It's like I work with her. She's really useful. Um, and she has so much to like offer through almost like technologies of like how to work with things. And I, and I, and I do all of that. Um, so it's, but it, it's lovely. It's lovely to hear about the UK, especially because I don't live there anymore, you know? Yeah, there's something that's here in the land when people they visit, especially for the first time, or for those of us, you know, that might have roots in the land, there there's a lot of magic to be found. Mm. And there's a lot of history, you know, history that you know we can read about in history books, of course, but it's really it's the unwritten histories. It's the the ancestry, the wisdom of the land, as you were speaking of, that's held here in these sacred sites that really awakens people and really calls us back into a, some profound places and I get to see it all the time as someone who leads retreats to many of these sacred sites. It's getting to to witness just how, you know, the, the ancient land of Albion, one of the oldest names of the UK, how Albion really works with people to bring us into our true selves and, and to awaken, yeah, these these profound remembrances. So it's, it's quite special here. And of course, many of the ancient, you know, culture that was in this land spreads into Europe as well. So, you know, whether whether it's near all the way going up to the more Nordic lands, all the way down to France, to Spain, this whole area was held by some some pretty incredible magic. And I think a lot of people are are starting to remember that, or at least starting to be drawn into, you know, the idea of what is Avalon, what are the Druids, what are stone sites, all these things. And yeah, there's something here to be found for sure. Yeah, and that's it. And it's it's lying just underneath the sort of overculture of like the modern age. It's if you drop down a bit, it's 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 just there. But yeah, I think it, I think it's like it's the time we're supposed to be going into these things. I was reading a while ago. Um, it's a woman called Dion Fortune. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. of her. She wrote in of the nineteen yeah in the nineteen thirties. I think it was. She wrote a book about Glastonbury, and she was saying about how you know there used to be an old like it sounded like Neolithic um, stones there at at the well, and she, she's writing about them just horrified, like saying you know they were just so like primitive and you know that kind of Victorian fear of like primitive man and you know I love Dion Fortune's bits absolutely and but I could tell it was like it was from the culture of the time the Victorians that's how they felt about you know burial mounds and Neolithic chambers and things like that whereas like if I see them I'm just like oh you know I can't wait to sort of get there and start tuning in and yeah I mean they're not all love and light you know I will I will say that, you know, there are are some places that hold some dark energies, but they're so profound. I mean, they're so incredibly profound. And, you know, for us to think in the modern day that we know everything and that we're superior is just, you know, well, it's laughable, really, isn't it? Yeah. And we're starting to see that these sites that were, as you were saying, were you know, judged as to be primitive or to be from not advanced people, nothing could be further from the truth. And that's one of the benefits that we have of modern day technologies. We get to re-examine these sites knowing more than perhaps we did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And even when we look at a lot of the history of 
what was said about the Druids, most of what was said about the Druids was from cultures outside the Druids, right? Because the Druids, they didn't hold written records. And so one of our best sources of Druidic culture comes from the Greek and Romans, mainly the Romans. And when we look at the Romans talking about the Druids, they call them barbarians, they call them savages. But when we look into the Greek history of the Druids, the Greeks often would send the, you know, the aristocracy, the high-end Greeks, they would send their children to be educated with the Druids because the Druids were so advanced in mathematics, in astronomy, in geometry, you name it, in medicines, that some of the highest cultures of the Greeks, they would send their children to be educated with it. And it's a shame that a lot of the Greek culture and history wasn't preserved in the way the Romans were. But what we see now is so much of what's known about the ancient UK sites and of the quote-unquote Druids comes from Rome, and they just completely belittled the Druids. But now with modern-day technology, when we look at a lot of these stone sites, these stone circles, these archaeological places in the UK, through modern technology, we can see that they're aligned to cardinal directions, to certain celestial events or certain constellations, stars, planets. Their geometries and mathematics literally are like a language that can be communicated, that it took actually a truly advanced culture to be able to build and organize and align some of these sites. And they were not simple barbarians or savages. No, these were people who knew what they were doing. And that's just on a scientific level. And then for those of us who want to look at it spiritually and understand things like ley lines or geomantic energies, geogrids, these places were like circuit boards. They were like high technology that worked with earth energies in very specific ways. And so they were advanced both scientifically, mathematically in a you know kind of modern day world, but they were also advanced spiritually and so this was a truly lost culture in how advanced they were and i think we're just starting to get back into that now and not just in the uk alone but we're seeing that all over the world that things keep getting older as grant hancock it would often say and things keep getting more and more advanced than we previously thought they were so that's part of what i feel is happening in the uk is not only is it drawing people in for these activations but also the sites themselves need our energy to come reactivate them for for today's work yeah absolutely I've had some sort of visions I suppose of being in Wales in caves and there being elementals there and a really strong presence of Merlin and also he seems there's a place here so the town where I live it was originally kind of Denmark's centre for Christianity it's a town called Roskilde and Kilo means spring, and the town is just full of springs. In this part of Denmark, we're actually sitting on um, it's um, meltwater from the Ice Age that got trapped by limestone, and it will eventually one day run out. It gets lower bit by bit, but there's still plenty of it left, and there's just this incredible purity of energy coming out. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a really strong place in right near the Donkirka, which is the, the the cathedral, with Merlin's energy in one, of, in one of the parks. And then I actually found a reference to Merlin that somebody else said he'd visited here. Mm. And, um, I mean, do you have anything to say about, about him? Because he seems to turn up a lot with Sarah as well. Of course. Yeah, I mean, Merlin's a, a really interesting character because just like Mary Magdalene, Merlin has, you know, 
almost unlimited perspectives on who he was, where he went, where he came from. So it's a really fun, both controversial, but very open-ended figure that allows you to find your truth through it. And so what I love most is when we look at archetypes, especially Christed archetypes throughout history, we'll take Jesus for an example. Usually what you find is you find this Christed king leader archetype, and they always have a mentor or someone who helps them grow into their, their coming of age. And so for Jesus, he had Joseph of Arimathea. And for King Arthur, he had someone like Merlin. And so you always find this type of like wizard, magi energy coming around this kind of Christed, rising leadership, king-like figure. And so Merlin oftentimes gets associated with King Arthur. And King Arthur, what most people don't realize is King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table were Welsh. And so most people think King Arthur comes from England. But no, most of the interesting stories of kind of Christianity that happened in England actually came from Wales that were kind of stolen over over time, but also the mythological archetypes. And so we don't actually know, you can't say for sure who Merlin was or where he came from. But what I can say by analyzing a lot of different things that I've read about Merlin over time is he seems to be a man who traveled a lot. Because he pops up from Scotland to Wales to England to Cornwall, as well as different places in Europe. And whether he's just one person who was Merlin or it was a number of people who held the title of Merlin, in the end, it might not even matter. But he certainly seems to be a man who got around and he would get around. A lot of what we know from these legends of King Arthur comes from Celtic Christianity and the way the early Christians held these records is that he tended to go to sites that were very important to early Christianity. And the reason for that is because early Christianity and the sites that were important early Christianity were much older than early Christianity. So a lot of the early Celtic church sites were built on Druid sites. And the reason why they were chosen for these sites is because they held spiritual importance. And almost all of them had to do with water. They were built on sacred springs, by the ocean, on sacred lakes, you name it. But water seemed to be a very important part of these sites. And so it's interesting that you said that there's history of Merlin at that site where there's these underground sacred aquifers, you know, and where these springs would come out. And so Merlin seems to be often associated with water. And so what I love most about water is I've, I've spent the last eight years studying Aramaic, the language that Jesus and these scenes would have spoken and so water is a very interesting word in Aramaic. And the word for water in Aramaic is Maya, Maya. And when I say Maya, most people, when they hear Maya, they think of the word from Sanskrit meaning illusion or confusion or untrue, false, you name it. It has a very negative connotation in the spiritual community. But in Aramaic, it has a completely different connotation because it means water. And so when we think of what water means symbolically in Aramaic is, let's say we know the three phases of matter. We have solid, water, gas, right? So solid, liquid, gas. And so we have solid, which means your physical reality, kind of matter, earth. And then you have gas, which is more, you know, spirit. And then water is the gateway point between the two, right? It's the connection. In Aramaic, the word for heaven is actually dashmaya. You'll hear the maya in there. And why that's important is because in Aramaic, heaven, dashmaya is the water, heaven is not a place, it's a state of being. It's the gateway between physical earth and the realms of God. And so maya, water, 
even in the Druidic culture and the Celtic culture, why it's important is because water was always the gateway point between the physical realms and the realms of spirit, or the realms of spirit and the realms of the physical. And so this is why Druid sites would always usually be built around water. And that's the same reason why this type of water connection was incorporated into early Christianity, because water was a medium in which we could move from spirit to matter or from matter to spirit. And so, of course, having it as a religious site makes complete sense. And then you have the priestesses of the water, the priestesses of the springs or the wells. Why they were priestesses of the wells and springs was not only because they, yes, they were there, that was their religious site of worship, but what does the symbolism of water represent? The priestesses who hold the gateways between matter and spirit or spirit and matter. And now we have the forgotten histories of the men of the water. And I believe tying into your story, bringing it all home, Merlin was a man of the water. Merlin was a man of the water. And so that's why you see throughout the UK history, Merlin travels to the sites in which the sacred waters were. And now it's up to all of us to interpret that as we like. So that's that's what came to mind when you uh, told me the story of him being there in that place of water by you. Well, that makes me so happy to hear that. That's just beautiful. And, and um, yeah, it's like a, I can't think what the word is, like a re-something, because that's been lost, that that concept of a man of the water and the, and the beauty in that that's just lovely mm, I shall treasure that thank you oh, thank you for receiving it yeah you often find that in, in the Celtic culture a lot of the kings were associated with ocean right this idea of ocean even sometimes people who investigate Mary Magdalene they're like oh there's mare right like the the, the French word for ocean or, or, or sea or water and is it meant to be taken literally or is it meant to be taken symbolically? And for me, I always like to take it symbolically. It's that these great kings and queens, priests and priestesses of the water, it's because they held the keys in which the transition between spirit and matter happened, which mm. to me is exactly what a priest and priestess is. Yeah, that's lovely. And also, Roskila is actually on the fjord. So we are, <laughs> we've got all these sacred springs coming up and then the fjord is just there. Like it's, you know, just five minutes walk from the place that I was telling you about. And there's just so many energy grids and ley lines and all sorts of um, things going on. And I've been working with it all the time I've been here. But the sort of the indigenous population of Denmark are, on the whole, fairly oblivious to it. So it's a very different experience than being in Glastonbury, where there's a sort of, um, I don't know, what, 100 years or something of people, you know, going go in there and sort of becoming aware of another life that is, you know, beneath the, the streets of Glastonbury here. It's still, it's me. I do tell people, it's not, no, that's not entirely true. I have managed to sort of do groups and things like that, but it's, um, in a way, it's quite nice because it is only me. But then other times I look around and I'm like, it's so sad because people are, They've lost something. And also the places themselves are sad because they want people to to come and, and get benefit from these sacred energies. And I love springs so much. I just love them. Oh, well, thank you for bringing those people back there and, and slowly helping them connect. And sometimes they don't even have to know what's there. Sometimes you can just bring groups to these areas without even sharing anything. And they'll have these remembrances, they'll have these sensations because they're in a spot 
where this type of geomantic energy comes from. So it's, mm. it's a term that it, when we look at a lot of earth energy work, it's called geomancy, which is essentially understanding the magic and the, the energy currents of the planet itself. And I love most getting into kind of Druidic and Celtic cultures because the ways in which they look at energy lines, what we'd consider ley lines is very different than what most people think. So a lot of what in today's spiritual communities, they think of ley lines, like very straight lines, very mathematical, you know, geometric. And of course that's great because these ratios and these mathematics are important. And do I feel like they are real? Of course, but I, I happen just to, to prefer the Druid way of looking at it, where it seems to be a little bit more organic, where the Druids, they understood ley line energies in three forms. You have the crystals, the minerals, you have metals, and then you have waterways. And so when we look at, at least in the UK, where all the sacred sites are, they all involve at least one, if not all of them, these understandings of ley lines, where you have the crystals, the minerals of the earth, where all these different quartz and crystal veins kind of travel like waterways, like you know underground highways. And these crystals connect into many of the sacred sites. And then you have the metals, you have gold, silver, copper, all the different important metals that are conductive, either electrically or spiritually. The Druids were able to also map out the metal ley lines. And then you have the waterways, which, of course, the way in which water flows itself is a conduit. But the Druids were so genius because when we look at a lot of how they understood ley line progression, because they didn't feel ley lines were fixed, they considered ley lines to be living. They were they were like the dragon lines, yeah, dragon yeah. lines, and the way that which the dragon tail flows. The way the Druids understood this was also very geologically scientific because let's say water is flowing through a mountain, right? And let's say this mountain is very rich in gold, a very important metal. Not only would they have mapped out where the gold is, but you have to also factor in that as the water flows, it's flowing over the rock or different mediums, and it slowly erodes these important metals or crystals, depending on where the water goes. And so the or rivers on the surface, they're slowly taking with them the crystals and the metals and redepositing them in different areas of the land. So the Druids were actually able to factor this in. And that's why we see very often that sacred sites in the Druids were moved or adjusted according to the ways in which the waters would flow. And going back to springs, the reason why so many of the springs in the UK, probably in the world, they get associated with very important spiritual or healing qualities is because of the minerals or the metals that are found within the water. They might not have known exactly the, you know, the molecular atomic makeup of these things, but they knew, oh, this spring has a lot of iron in it. Therefore, it's really good for blood or it's really good for the feminine, different things like that. And so these wells would get associated with feminine mysteries because the iron was so rich in the water, like at the Chalice Well in Glastonbury. And so they were able to understand that water becomes a medium in which a lot of these metals and crystals were distributed or infused into them. And I love this because it helps you really in a very non-spiritual, non-energetic way, really understand the power of ley lines within the earth in a more kind of yeah, grounded, organic way. And I love that way of seeing it. Yeah. And that is how I've experienced them is they're very organic. And like working with Sarah, when things are being created, it is like it's like things are growing like from a seed and then I go away and I come back and it's grown into this. And it is like a plant or something, but like on a on a on an energy level. And I never expected that. I expected it to be much more, 
yeah, like how it's been described with ley lines, things in very, you know, fixed lines and but yeah, <laughs> not that's not been that's not been how I've experienced mm-hmm. it. Oh, so interesting. It's funny you, you brought up uh you know the term ley lines too, is because I can't remember the gentleman's name off the top of my head, but the one who coined the term ley lines. He was in the Black Mountains of the Breck Beacons, not too far from my house. That's where he had that, that revelation of, of, you know, these lines, of course, are set thousands of years old. But the one in modern day who coined the term telluric ley lines, he was he was here. Oh, wow. I'd love to talk a bit about the time of year that we're entering into, because this is such a special time of the year, going towards the solstice and Christmas and the new year and I'd be fascinated to hear your you know what you find interesting about this time of the year Mm, I I love that people are just really gearing up for the Christ energy regardless of whether he was born on on uh, you know December 25th which I don't feel he was but what I love most is behind it all is this pagan Christ energy and for me that's just really fun to to celebrate because everyone can make of it what they will but it it's almost a, a heart opening in some ways, but to get connected to the land, what I what I really had a profound experience recently is, as the temperature started getting colder, the season was really changing. In the, in the Celtic culture, we call it the turning of the wheel, in which there's this Celtic understanding of that the seasons are on this wheel that turns, and we can understand different holidays, different holidays, but times of the year that are celebrated for different seasonal reasons. You really feel that here in these lands. And so I was walking around outside and I could feel the energy of the land starting to go to sleep. It was starting Mm -hmm. to be drawn down inside like it was hibernating. And so I feel as a, a worldwide society, we've lost that connection to the natural rhythms and seasons of nature, mainly because we live in places where you can't experience it as much. But where I live is basically in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Wales, um, and so the elements really are the rulers here. You have no choice. You know, if, if it snows too much, I'm trapped in the mountains for a while, right? <laughs> or anything like it, you really feel the power of the seasons. And so walking around it, it gave me a deep appreciation in which the seasons hold different elemental energies and we can actually connect to them and harmonize ourselves to them. And the more we harmonize ourselves to the rhythms of the Earth Mother, we then become in sync with her. And I've really appreciated that living where I am now is how I can surrender my my ego or surrender how I think I should be or feel. But to be, wow, there's a greater energy that that is moving through the planet. And to become aware of that and to work with that energy, it's, it's something really special. And so this is the time in which you find things, you know, slowing down, going internal, starting to hibernate. You know, it's there's a reason why during a woman's moon cycle, you know, her moon time is her winter, right? It's a time to go internal, reflect, connect in, to feel yourself. And so I feel a lot of people now preparing for a hibernation, preparing for an internal dive. And if we look at maybe, you know, if we're on Facebook as spiritual beings listening to our peers and what they have to say, it feels like a lot of people are being called into a state of integration, which is so perfect now because we're going into our cave, we're going into our, our solstice time of the year. 
And this is what gets honored oftentimes during these periods, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, because of course, during the Southern Hemisphere right now, it's your summer solstice, but we're gearing to go internal now. And, and this is why I feel so many of these Christed figures throughout world cultures, you know, we look at Mithras, we look at Osiris, they tend to have birthdays on the 25th of December. There's the time in which we go inside in which the light or the star or the being or the return of the light is then born forth from that darkness, right? As we we're talking about in the beginning of our, our conversation today, right? Sometimes from the darkness creates the greatest light. And so it's like we're going in, we're embracing that darkness, we're in the womb space of that dark cave, we're integrating, we're gestating, we're being rebirthed in order to emerge again as the bright light of the star that's coming. And so you find all these different types of mythos or legends or, or understandings of this time of returning inward, going back in into the darkness so that we can be birthed or grow again, right? We have to go into this period before the springtime comes later in the year. And so it's been really fun to feel that in a visceral way. Like, you know, we might understand these things as a concept spiritually, but yeah, to, for me, I've really enjoyed experiencing that here on this land and, and getting ready to go in so that I can be rebirthed on the other side of it. I don't think I've seen that parallel before, actually. So that like what we were talking about at the beginning, and I'm saying that point in your life where everything's so dark, you can't believe like the light is ever going to, come back and of course that's what's happening at the winter solstice and you know in the in the in the times before Christianity there was a lot of like calling back the sun and but it's the same thing I hadn't I hadn't seen one as a metaphor for the other that's really interesting because it's kind of obvious (laughs) yeah I love that yeah, there's always there's always kind of that that darkness that comes before the light. You know, it's that age old saying. But I, I always like to think about the experience of, you know, a baby being born. Because if you think what it's like from the perspective of a baby in the womb, it's comfortable, it's happy. But then suddenly you go through this process where it's in the darkness being squeezed out almost from a baby's perspective. It's being squeezed to death. It doesn't know that on the other side of that birth canal is life. And so I always like that metaphor, too. You know, there's that, you know, sometimes when we're in the darkness, we're being prepared to be birthed and the birthing process isn't necessarily this divine orgasmic pleasurable experience no it it's going to press press us through that dark void like a black hole so that we come out as the birth of the sun and that's why you know as i said before there's there's so many metaphors of the sun rising out of the darkness or being birthed out again or the return the calling back of the light and we see that you know in in mythologies five thousand years old going back to babylon and sumer there, there's always that dark period in which the light is called back or returned through. And that's why I love this time is it's, it's we're, we're voluntarily, hopefully, or if not, we're dragged into it. We're going into that dark underground cave now to rest, to recoup, to hibernate so that our light can be reborn again the next time. Mm. Yeah, and we're definitely feeling that here in Europe at the moment because we're having a really cold spell, aren't we? So yeah. the land is really... You know, it really is midwinter. It's not one of these winters where you're wondering, where did the cold winters go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I'd love to ask you, how do you, uh, not to, unless you want to keep talking about the subject, but I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on Sarah, if, if you have a moment to, or what you want to share about her. Because I love hearing how how people see her and how how you, yeah, how you work with her. Gosh, I mean, I mean, 
could you be a little bit more specific just to give me because I could like go to a lot of different places with that question okay so what I love most is the the big divide in the kind of you know Celtic or Christian sorry not Celtic Christian spirituality is the big question did Jesus and Mary Magdalene have children right you have the camp that says no they didn't and then the camp that says yes they did and the camp that says yes they did have children it tends to be divided more than how many children did they have just a daughter did they have a daughter and a son did they have many children and so I love hearing people's perspective who feel they had at least one child if not many but also what do you feel happened to Sarah where did she go where was she born where did she live you know all all these things that uh, yeah for me I find very fascinating yeah, so I mean, I can only talk about the things that I've kind of personally experienced as a as a felt experience, and also to say that you know I was brought up in the Church of England, which to me wasn't really a spirituality. So I wasn't a Christian, and um, later on in life, after my mother died, I got into spirituality because I was experiencing my mother after she died, and realised that I was you know not the person that I thought I was. And then, you know, just sort of got more and more into kind of spiritual stuff after that. But I was quite disappointed when I went on a workshop to work with Ascended Masters and Jesus turned up. I wanted Kuan Yin Ah. (laughs) or someone Eastern anyway, goddess-like. And then he was like, you know, I'm not who they said I was. I'm not who you've been taught I am. And I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, over the years, then I worked with Lady Nada, who turned into Mary Magdalene. (laughs) Okay, all right. I went off to Hawaii um, and was working with Pele a lot. And then when I came back, Sarah just turned up. I was supposed to be channeling some Hawaiian goddess. And Sarah came through with a message and said, I am the daughter of Mary Magdalene because I was a real goddess person. So they kind of knew they would get me that way, you know, through through the, the, the sacred feminine. But I have always worked very much with her energies. And like I said, you know, technologies in a way, there's healing systems that um, I've created from the work that I've done with her and ways of working with land energies. And, you know, people write to me a lot and say, you know, how many brothers and sisters did she have? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't ask. Unless she gives me information, I don't ask for it because I don't want to accidentally make it up. And also, that's not my interest. I'm really interested in what she can do for us now because her energy is so catalytic. And it's like, so I'm a bit Christian and I'm a bit pagan. So I'm I'm both. And that's so Sarah. It's she's you bring her in and her energies bring things together. She's like that Jungian um oh, conjunctio thing where you hold that tension of opposites. And it's what we're so bad at in our current society. And Sarah comes along and suddenly it's integrated. You know, so she is a bit like a she is a bit like a a miracle worker, and so you know I work with her very much as a as a as an energy healer, and also people have such fixed beliefs about this happened or that happened, and I'm like, 
I'm not one of those people. I'm not a great believer in anything. I sort of go along with with what I experienced. But I did have an experience of of her being in her mother's womb at Christ's crucifixion. And the kind of blueprint that he held, whilst Mary Magdalene held the space, he passed it over to Sarah. But she is like she's like the two of them together, mm. and it creates this like third energy, and it's just there's just like endless variations to work with on that theme, and it's so fascinating. But I have felt her really strongly in Glastonbury, in Iona, out in um, the Pyrenees, in Rendle mm. Chateau, and around there, um, Malta as well I mean I'm just obsessed with Malta and she has had me put her flame out there in some of the ancient temples out there although the land energies although they're very powerful there seems to be a lot of damage and it feels like a very kind of central place for the earth somehow um but she also seems to have strong connections to Hawaii and some people say oh no you know no that's you know that's not her and but I think she has a lot of very different aspects to her energy and she has a very strong new earth energy and that's that's the Hawaii energy but she's left seeds around the globe for people to find and there was one in Glastonbury Violet Flame Temple and we activated that a few years ago and it just gently draws in stuff you Mm. know and it never stops and is transforming it. And I know there's other places and that other people will find them. But to me, that's really her. That's how I see her. I see her as this incredible earth engineer who is here teaching us how to create these sacred places for our time, you know. And we are the people who came before and did it the last time. Round, you know, they weren't somebody else. It was us. You know, it's like, but we've just, we've just, we've just forgotten this. But she also has a really, really central part to play with. Um, kind of, she's a bridge maker. So that bridge, because there's such a split between the material and the and the spiritual. So that connection to our divine spark. And again, you know, because I'm an energy healer, she teaches me very sort of technological ways of doing it um but yes yeah, I mean it's fascinating I never would have thought like as a kid that I was going to end up working with Sarah Mary Magdalene's daughter and even not when I was an adult because I was a very logical cynical mm-hmm. person with no interest in anything like this at all and then you know it just happened bit by bit and it just keeps me endlessly fascinated. I always have another, at least another 25 projects that I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I've answered any of your your questions there. I, I love it. Thank, thank you for sharing all that. I don't think she had an easy life. I'll say that. I don't think she had an easy life. And it does feel one of her things is really to build community. So mm-hmm. I suspect that she was actually very isolated um, for large parts of her life and very, very lonely because she actually seems to love 
creating community. And I think it's one of her great missions is to bring us into harmony with each other so that we're not all split off and separate from each other, but actually like we remember that how to be together and just love each other, you know? Wow. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I just love absorbing and, and hearing, you know, perspectives on these, these amazing figures because I, I learn a lot and I get enriched every time someone, you know, shares from their heart about it. And I, I love that you woke in Malta into there. Malta is very, very near and dear to my heart. I used to go every single year throughout my childhood. And so it's it's beautiful that you wove, you know, um, yeah, Sarah into Malta, which is such an incredibly important priestess initiation place. So of course, you know, why why wouldn't she she be there? My brother actually got married there a couple of years oh. ago, um, just before COVID happened, and I managed to just get out there because uh, me and my Danish husband we have a, a son with special needs, so my traveling life has just like gone the last eight years and it's kind of okay because there is a lot around here where I live anyway but I so I managed to get out there to Malta and they asked me to sing at their Mm. wedding they had this beautiful like civil ceremony in that really old ancient town I can't remember what it's called is it called Mdina Yes, that's it. Yes, 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 yes. And I and I said, well, I can sing you something, but it will be some sort of sacred song in some sort of old language. And they went, yeah, all right then. And I sang a <laughs> chant for them in Hawaiian, and mm. it was asking for blessings from the land and the land spirits and the energy that mm-hmm. came in, Oliver. It, it was just so so beautiful oh my god it was just absolutely divine and then after that because I'm not great at social occasions I managed to just stay I was with my eldest son I managed to just stay for a couple of courses and then the meal and then escape home on a public bus and I felt like all the way home we were being like lifted home by these spirits who were so happy to be involved again in in just the blessings that came forth I mean of course I don't really know or understand what happened but it was beautiful Mm. I love that oh it's so magic yeah Yeah, Malta is just like Hawaii Malta is such a a special special place and I'm so happy you were able to to weave in and deliver those codes as well as to be in it yourself I mean what an opportunity just so just so random but my brother's wife her mum's husband is Maltese so there they got married in Malta and it was just it was Mm. such a random thing I was just but like you know like we were saying they're not random these things you know it's all being woven in and yeah something happening here it's been lovely talking to you today I hope we can do it again of course I'd love that absolutely when you get when you when you when you're getting ready to publish your book or after you've published it, it'd be great to have a, a another interview and talk about no, it. Yeah, we can go to to the the deep druid Jesus connection. Then <laughs> I'm wondering if there is there a little thing that you can give to the people listening, something easy that they can incorporate in their everyday life to bring in this spirituality that you is so heartfelt for you. Mm. 
Well, what came to mind is an Aramaic word, and I'll share it with everyone so they can chant it or, or say it themselves. But I was always really interested to read biblical scripture in, in the original Aramaic because certain things come out of reading it in the original language that the Bible was written in or recorded in that maybe has been lost in, in many of today's translations. And so I was really fascinated with the stories of when Jesus would work with people, specifically heal people, quote unquote, heal people. And he'd always say one thing before he would ever do any kind of healing work on people. And he would say this Aramaic word, talk, talk. And what that translates as is be open or be empty, be open or be empty. And that allowed the healing energies to come into you. And so it wasn't so much Jesus, Yeshua doing the healing, but helping to remind you that in order for you to become a vessel for the divine energies to flow through you, you needed to be open. You needed to have the capacity to receive the light that wanted to be received. And the only thing that stops us from receiving this beautiful divine light is our inability to be open our inability to be that conduit or channel. And so he would remind people before the healing energies would take place, he would say, be open, be open. And then the healing that already would naturally happen reminds people to allow that process to happen once more. So just as a reminder to everyone, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're feeling, working with, just keep being open, become that vessel, become that conduit so that that divinity can flow through you. And that is our right. That is our birthright and our natural state. Oh, thank you, Oliver. That's beautiful. And I have to say, I feel you are a living expression of that energy, of that mm. word. As I've been talking to you, as I've said before, my heart feels so open and I think I'm like empathically picking that up from you because I have to say, I have to admit, I'm not normally that open at the heart. So um, I think you are, you know, embodying that. Oh, thank you for that. I'm trying to more and more every day, you know, through my own wounding, through my own closed heart, trying to open it more and more every day. So thank you for seeing that. Oh, you're welcome. And yes, that's it for today. Unless you have got one last thing that you're burning to tell us is there anything else um, i would say just get ready for a joseph of arimathea story to come out because it's coming and it will be the, the missing key <laughs> fantastic i'm sure me and everybody else we're all so looking forward to it so i think you're going to have a lot of people hounding you now <laughs> wanting to know <laughs> when it's coming out that's um, brilliant all right Thanks very much, Oliver. And I'll just say goodbye to all the people listening. And I'll see you in 2023. Bye for now, yeah. everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, Happy New Year.